that all OT practitioners should understand the basic tenets of acceptance and commitment therapy. Acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, weaves together multiple concepts that we've already talked about on the podcast. And on just a personal level as practitioners, it provides really helpful tools that we can utilize as we navigate complex situations in our work. But ACT is not just personally helpful. The research that we are looking at today shows us why we need to be aware of it as occupational therapy professionals. Namely, we're going to see that research supports the use of ACT in addressing chronic pain. And this week's article focuses on an interdisciplinary team, which included OTs, who provided intensive pain management treatment built around ACT. For me, this article really demystified what our role can look like in pain management teams. But more than that, it raised these big picture questions about how we can be more involved in this important practice area and also just leverage the principles of ACT in any setting that we work in. I cannot wait to look at all of this with you today. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic, and I invite on our expert guest, Linda Crawford, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. For members of the OT Potential Club, all you will need to do after this podcast is log in, take a five-question test, and that will allow you to earn a CEU certificate. If you are not a member of the OT Potential Club, it is currently just $79 to sign up, and we have so many great resources and discussions in there, so I highly encourage you to consider joining us. But bearing in mind that this episode could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify practical strategies for incorporating self as context into your treatments. Our second is that you will recognize unique ways that OTs can leverage the principles of ACT during their evaluations and treatments. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we will bring Linda Crawford on to discuss how it can play out in your practice. So just the title of this journal article alone is pretty dense, so I'm going to read it slowly for us. It is Change in quote-unquote self is context, parentheses perspective taking, that occurs in acceptance and commitment therapy for people with chronic pain and is associated with improved functioning. This article came to us from the Journal of Pain. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 64th on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So the article begins with just this big picture overview of acceptance and commitment therapy. So acceptance and commitment therapy is widely considered a third wave of cognitive behavioral therapy. And while the prior two waves of the therapies focus on changing our unhelpful thought patterns, ACT in this third wave encourages people to recognize and accept their thoughts and then continue to take actions in pursuit of their goals. So just in my own words, the kind of thinking that ACT encourages is something like, Oh, interesting. I'm noticing that I'm afraid of pain, but I am going to continue on and do my safe exercises and pay attention to my body as I do them. The idea is that this is a much more productive way of thinking than trying to just suppress or change our fear of pain and then waiting until that fear goes away before moving forward on our goals. Because at the end of the day, we just do not have control over our thoughts in that way. The goal of ACT in its core processes is also called psychological flexibility. And this means that we are present in the moment with full awareness and openness to our experiences and that we take actions guided by our values. And what was new to me, and this is ACT is not just acceptance and mindfulness at its core, it is a model of behavior change. 
It's about using these psychological tools so we can move forward and take actions that align with our goals. So thinking of it that way, that of course makes it super relevant to OTs. It makes me thankful that we are exploring it today. ACT has six interrelated core processes. I'm going to go through them and just say like a sentence about each. You could, of course, dig into these deeper. The first core process is acceptance. And this is just letting go of the impractical resistance to unwanted thoughts and experiences. The second core process is cognitive diffusion. And this is unfusing yourself from your thoughts where you notice and acknowledge them, but realize that you are not controlled by them. In this kind of thinking, you might say to yourself, I'm noticing that I am feeling afraid versus I am afraid. The third process is being present, and that is being aware and fully in contact with the present moment. This is very similar to the concept of mindfulness that we have already explored on the podcast. The fourth process has a name that I did not recognize, but I'm still familiar with the core concept. In ACT, they call the process self is context. And the idea is that you are not controlled by every unhelpful thought that passes through your brain. You can transcend your thoughts and observe them. And from this view, we can see ourselves as a complex web of thoughts and influences But within this context, we can still choose our actions. In my supplementary reading, I found that the founder of ACT actually has started referring to this as a transcendent sense of self. The fifth process is really familiar to us. It is values. And these are the qualities that we want reflected in our actions. And the sixth process is called committed action. And to me, this is really the culmination of the theory and the part that feels very OTs. And it's the idea that once we've accepted that we have unhelpful thoughts and circumstances, sometimes we've realized we can transcend them and just observe them as a context, then we can persist in our actions guided by our goals. So that is a very high-level introduction to ACT as a theory. And then the article moves into specifically talking about ACT as it relates to chronic pain. And there is just this growing base of research supporting the use of ACT in chronic pain management. And I will say that since this article was published in 2017, the support and research for ACT for Chronic Pain has just continued to grow. And specifically, I'm going to link to a brand new paper that is on ACT for Pediatric Chronic Pain. This is not just a theory for adults. It really pertains to pediatric rehab as well. But in the article, the authors talk about how there is this effort to increase the effectiveness of ACT by doing different studies to figure out which parts of it are the most potent in the rehab experience. And so there have been multiple studies done already that look at specific parts of ACT related to chronic pain. And they've already studied acceptance, present focused awareness, cognitive diffusion, values, and committed action, which those are five of the pillars, which means that one has not yet been studied. And that is self as context, which then leads us into why this article was written. The intent of this paper was to examine ACT for chronic pain, and the authors were specifically asking, one, did ACT have an effect on chronic pain and self as context, as one would expect? And two, if so, was this effect positively correlated with positive treatment outcomes? In the methods section, they tell us that the participants in the study were adults attending a pain management center in London. 412 adults provided baseline data, and 213 contributed to the follow-up data nine months later. All of these adults were seeking treatment for their chronic pain. The article says that the mean duration that they had been experiencing this pain at the baseline was 8.8 years. And in decreasing order, the most prevalent primary pain sites were the back, lower limbs, upper limbs, pelvic region, head, and abdomen. So what did the treatment program that they were studying entail? The treatment was provided over four full days for four weeks. It was delivered in groups of 9 to 11 participants, and the treatment team included a group of psychologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, nurses, and physicians. 
And the article does have a specific blurb on the role of OT. OTs delivered 16 sessions that amounted to 18 hours of total treatment. The article says that this OT included instruction and practice of value-based motivational methods, as well as practical skills training. This training included three things, discussion and exercises for values, clarification, and goal setting. The second was sleep education, including a sleep diary and calculator of sleep efficiency. And the third was other functional abilities, such as communication, activity management, and return to work skills. There's actually a lot of great information about the treatment program, so I'll refer you to the article for the roles of the other members. But moving forward into the assessments that the team used to track progress, the participants completed assessments at the beginning of treatment, at the end of the four weeks, and nine months later. The outcome measures that they used were pain intensity, the self-experiences questionnaire, the chronic pain acceptance questionnaire, the brief pain inventory, the work and social adjustment scale, and the patient health questionnaire. I will be sure to add these to our assessment search in the club if you want to dig deeper into them. So there's all the background knowledge about the treatment, about the outcomes, and then we move into what were the results. And overall, there was marked improvement in the scores across all measures at the end of the treatment and at nine months post-treatment. Specifically, at the end of treatment, 42 to 68% of patients improved to a meaningful degree on each outcome measure. There were 7 to 9% that worsened to a meaningful degree. So even though there was overall improvement across the data, there was a certain percentage of people that did worsen. And at nine months, the numbers remained pretty similar. 47 to 56% of patients reported improvement to a meaningful degree on each outcome measure. But there was also this small percentage, 7 to 14%, that worsened to a meaningful degree. And additionally, self is context, which was measured by the self-experiences questionnaire, correlated with functional improvements, namely in the areas of pain-related interference, work and social adjustment, and depression. So what did the authors conclude and discuss from this study? The authors remind us that chronic pain can bring just this deep sense of personal loss, threat, and even disintegration. And addressing this changing sense of self through intensive ACT treatment delivered by an interdisciplinary team led to measurable improvements in their self as context or their understanding of themselves. And what's really interesting is these changes correlated with functional improvements. Their lived experience improved as their sense of self changed. And these improvements held over the nine-month follow-up, which honestly is pretty remarkable. We lots of times don't see lasting change like that in the research that we look at. So overall, this research supports self as context as an important part of ACT and shows that continued research into this therapy for chronic pain treatment is merited. So this study was super interesting, but I think at first glance, it can feel a little detached from the OT that lots of us provide. We are not used to thinking in terms of acceptance and commitment therapy, and the vast majority of us do not work on chronic pain management teams. But that is exactly why I'm so thankful to have Linda Crawford on our podcast today, she does such a good job of bringing this back to a personal level and to a level that really speaks to, honestly, all occupational therapists. Just as a quick bio, Linda has been an occupational therapist for over 30 years and has specialized in working with people with complex pain conditions for the past eight years using her three-part framework, Restore Your Body, Rebuild Your Life, Renew Your Joy. Linda is a Brene Brown Daring Way Certified Facilitator and was a contributing author to the newly updated AOTA position paper on the role of occupational therapy in pain management. Linda is a passionate advocate for the profession of occupational therapy and serves as the current president of the Occupational Therapy Association of Colorado. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to patch Linda into the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Linda. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. 
I have had the best time the past couple of weeks diving into ACT and chronic pain. I think my big takeaway thus far has just been to think about ACT as a behavior change model. I think I had thought of it as like acceptance and mindfulness, but it's really a way of thinking about how we change behaviors. And as OTs, I don't think we think about that enough, all the psychological factors that go into that, because behavior change is so complex and it's so hard and we know that in our personal lives. So I'm like, this is the best topic for us to be discussing both related to chronic pain and then just broader for basically all OTs to be thinking about behavior change in this way. I wanted to start today by just having you share your story. First of all, let's start with how you found OT in the beginning. Thanks, Sarah, for the opportunity to, to share a bit about my OT journey and my experiences and my how I found OT story, I think, is a little bit unusual. I'll start with kind of how I went to college after high school. I went to study chemistry because I'd fallen in love with science in high school. And, and then my first semester of college, I hit the brick wall of organic chemistry and calculus. So second semester, I took pottery, <laughs> and then I dropped out because I really didn't know what I wanted to study anymore, and so I went into a career of retail management, but also during that time, I had an interesting little side career as a professional pro-rally co-driver, which I traveled all over the U.S. and in Europe competing in off-road rally events, and I earned three U.S. national championships during that time. And uh, most people thought, and maybe they still think, that I'm a pretty quiet and reserved person, but I definitely have a thrill-seeker side. Um, so after about five years of this lifestyle, I felt really bored and stuck in a retail store all day. I didn't feel like I was really living a life of meaning, you know, and purpose, and I had to do something else. So one day, I just decided that I was going to take a trip to the University of New Hampshire. I was living in Maine, and I grew up in Maine at the time. And so I, my goal that day was to find my new career. I just, I'm going to go there. I'm going to find my new career. So I went into the information office, and I picked up every program brochure they had on programs and to see if anything looked interesting. So, you know, I think I had like four or five or six, I don't remember, but then on the way home, and I would not recommend doing this, but I was so excited to find my new career that I began reading the brochures as I was driving. And so I started with physical therapy and I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting, but oh wait, there's too much exercise. I'm not really into that. And um, social work, that was another one that sounded really kind of interesting and started connecting, but I'm not sure I'm really up for all the counseling stuff. And then I picked up one that said occupational therapy. And I was like, what is that? I've never heard of that before. And then I started reading, helping to focus people on living their best lives, um, independence, um, individual focus and real life environments, helping people find meaning and purpose. And everything I was reading just started resonating with me like you know that internal feeling like your guy like oh yeah this, this 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 and so somehow I just knew like right there in my car reading that brochure that occupational therapy was going to be my new career and so and that's all I ever knew about it and so I started taking prerequisite classes in New Hampshire and then I transferred to Colorado State University so I could live in my dream state and complete my program. And so, you know, finding that one brochure absolutely changed my life. And I just absolutely love OT even more after 30 some years. Oh, I love your origin story so much because I can see the different elements just of you in there. Like, I can see you being great at retail. I can kind of see your thrill seeker side, like <laughs> <laughs> coming out sometimes. And yeah, I can see you reading that brochure and resident that. I think when we describe occupational therapy, it's so compelling and resonates with people. And I'm always surprised how many people just like read a paragraph about it and then decided to dedicate their career to it. Like that's, we have a pretty special profession, I would say for sure. We do. We do. It was that yeah. meaning and purpose I was looking for and I found it. Oh, awesome. I want to skip ahead a little bit in your story then. I know that at one point, you experienced chronic pain, and this led to you starting a private practice. Could you tell us a little bit about that part of your journey? 
Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. And, you know, I will say my personal chronic pain experience, it, it profoundly changed me. And I think in my life, when I look back, there's a pre-pain Linda and pre-pain OT Linda and a post-pain OT Linda. And although it was really incredibly difficult experience, I'm so grateful for the profound growth and positive change I experienced in both my personal and my professional life. So talking about my pain story, I'll say, you know, I know the exact date it started, October 23rd, 2009. I was working as a PRN therapist on the skilled nursing floor of the hospital I worked at. And the first patient I had of the day, we were transferring from the bed to the wheelchair and she dropped her full weight on me with no warning. And I had checked everything, you know, all the charts before she was a min assist. Everything said that, but that's not what happened. And, you know, usually you can feel when people are losing, but this, there was absolutely no warning. And so instinctively, I just caught her and she was fine, but I was not. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I was 50 and in the best shape of my life. I was doing boot camp workouts. I was running. I thought, you know, there's no way I can get hurt doing this this physical job anymore, but obviously I was. So what I was eventually diagnosed with from that injury was a torn meniscus in my left knee and I had torn muscles in my back and I had a displaced rib. So, you know, all the things we do as an occupational therapist, lifting, walking, bending, all those things were out of the question and very painful. And at the time I had three months on work comp before I would lose my job. And unfortunately, that pesky rib wouldn't go back in place with all the therapy that I was doing. And with three weeks left before I'd lose my job, a un series of unfortunate events started that would continue in my life for over the next three years. And so first, you know, I had an adjustment by a health professional who promised to fix my rib and instead did a treatment on a different part of my body, injured my pelvis, lower back and SI joint. And it was this treatment injury pain that was to become my chronic pain and unwelcome companion, I'll say, for the next four and a half years. So obviously, I lost my job. And after about nine months of doing physical therapy, massage therapy, and everything that they told me to do, I was living with a level six to eight pain every day. I could barely walk. If I went grocery shopping, I'd be in bed for two days. And at this nine-month point... My work injury doc said, hey, we've done everything we can do. There's nothing else that will help you. And I will say, you know, that was about one, exactly one year from my original injury with the client transfer. And I will say, you know, I look back on that and I say, that's the day that occupational therapy saved my life. Because, you know, I was told there's nothing else that is ever going to help you. This is your life. And I'd been helping people for over 20 years and I believed in the resilience of human beings to affect their own healing and live their best lives. That's what I believed in and what I did. And I really found that I couldn't accept that there was nothing that would help me. And I realized that I had done everything but OT in my recovery program. And so I really realized that occupational therapy really wasn't a job that I did. It was actually a belief system. It was a core value of life that was going to help me. You know, it's that reason that I think when I found OT, it resonated so deeply within me, right? I had believed for every person that I'd worked with for 20 years, but I didn't believe it for myself. And it was time that I did. And so that was the day I started OTing myself and I took charge of my own recovery. I found a fantastic, empathetic, and expert therapist. I began studying pain science, pain rehabilitation, everything I could find, right? I'm going to learn everything so I can become the expert for myself. And I discovered that there were so many factors that were actually contributing to my pain experience, including like my emotional responses, my responses to sensory systems, even bright lights and noises. And, and then, of course, my trauma responses, my memories of, you know, obviously being injured and just fears, right, of treatments and all kinds of things that I had some patterns and learned responses. And it was also during that time that I discovered Brene Brown's shame resilience work, which is based on principles of acceptance and commitment therapy. 
which we're going to talk about today. And I realized that those emotional responses, particularly shame, right? Being in pain for a long time can feel really shameful because people don't understand. They might think you're faking it, exaggerating, that kind of thing. It was making every time I would have those feelings, my pain levels would go up. And so I knew I had to really dig in and address those types of factors, those psychological factors. And, you know, it took me about three and a half years, but eventually, little by little, doing all kinds of work and gaining knowledge and applying it to myself, my pain gradually went away. My unfortunate events still happened in those three and a half years. I have two more treatment injuries to other parts of my body. But I'm happy to say that, you know, I'm eight years chronic pain free and I'm back to doing running and biking, all the things they told me I would never never do. And so as, you know, I was coming out of recovery, obviously it changed my whole perspective on occupational therapy, working with people in pain because of what I'd been through. And I decided that, you know, I wanted to help people not to not have to go what, what I went through. And, you know, I was attending all these courses and I was the only OT in the room, you know, they were all physical therapists trying to learn law about pain science and treatment methods. And I was like, man, we need OT because it's OT saved my life. And so because of that experience, I decided to dedicate the rest of my professional years helping people in pain and advocating for the value of, of occupational therapy. So I started my practice, called it Brave Therapy. It's courage to do Brave Therapy. And I came up with the tagline, restore your body, rebuild your life, renew your joy. Because to me, that kind of identified the core principles that would guide the occupational therapy program that I'd work with. So, you know, I integrate pain science education with self-compassion skills, Brene Brown's work, graded motor imagery, graded exposure, all kinds of stuff, sensory processing assessments, self-regulation, you know, more things that we will talk about today. But this is kind of my passion and where I've spent the last eight years is teaching about pain rehabilitation to students and practitioners and hoping to inspire more occupational therapy practitioners to specialize in working with people in pain. Wow, Linda, I'm so honored to have you share that story. And I know different parts of it are going to resonate so much with different people. I think something I'm thinking about right now is I hear this common story where sometimes as OTs, we don't realize how valuable OT is until we apply it to ourselves. And you can be in practice for a long time, but until you experience it yourself, I think sometimes we surprise ourselves with how just transformative our core principles are. I'm also hearing your story and being like, wow, I'm so thankful that I got connected with you to talk about this article, just all the different levels of experience that you bring to it. It really feels serendipitous to be talking to you now. I wanted to start turning to the article and kind of asking one of the big questions first. This article was about chronic pain act, but specifically focused on self as context, which to me is kind of the uh, the least intuitive pillar of act. I think all the other ones felt really intuitive to me as an OT. So I was wondering, based on your training, based on your experience with it, what this particular part of ACTS means to you. Oh, yeah. I just absolutely love the concept of self as context. And thinking to our occupational therapy practice framework, that identifies context as part of our domain, right? Along with client factors, performance patterns, performance skills, and occupations, if you look at the model of our practice framework. But I think that what traditionally we think of context factors as environmental factors. But let's think about adding self as a context factor and the potential that has to radically shift the focus of our therapy. You know, what would happen if we routinely explored a person's experience of everything, you know, within themselves? And I think this is an absolute necessity. I think with any person we're working with, and, and let me explain a little bit more why. So the OT practice framework does identify context as the broad construct that encompasses environmental factors and personal factors. 
I think we forget that and personal factors. It's right there in our framework, self as context. And what's the purpose of addressing self as context? So if we go to looking with the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, that's where you can explore more about acceptance and commitment therapy, and you'll find a lot more resources. The purpose of exploring and working with people to develop a self as context perspective is this, and this is in quotes from their site. It's to make contact with a sense of self that is safe and provide a consistent perspective from which to observe and accept all changing inner experiences. And I just love that. If we dig into that a little bit more, let's think about making contact with a sense of self that is safe. And I'll tell you that when I was in chronic pain, nothing felt safe. My sense of self was consumed by fear, uncertainty, grief, shame. And, you know, let's think about the people that we're working with. Are they really able to make contact with a sense of self that is safe? You know, it's incredibly difficult when we're dealing with health, life, emotional challenges, you know, all those things that are going on for the clients that we're working with. And and most people will feel how I felt, you know, anxious, we're fearful, confused, we might be angry, sad, and maybe depressed. We might be really hard and judgmental on ourselves. And we really might feel shame by what we're experiencing. And, you know, I didn't really even feel like I knew who I was anymore when I was in pain. I had lost so many things in my life that I'd found my identity with. So trying to find a safe place within myself was just about impossible. And then in acceptance and commitment therapy, we talk about observing and accepting those changing inner experiences. You know, hey, absolutely not. You know, nothing about that felt good. And you know, it's all about pain and everything else. And I'm going to make a true confession here that when I first read about ACT when I was in pain, it actually made me really angry. And I threw the book away. I did because I had read it was going to help me, right? So I wanted to learn everything. But my life was such a mess. I was in excruciating pain and there was no way I was going to accept any of it. And yet, eventually... Through the work I did, I came to realize that that was exactly the change that made all the difference in my life. Creating a safe sense of self in order to experience and be able to take a different perspective and kind of be curious about what I was experiencing and accept those inner changes and those inner experiences. It gave me the ability to self-assess, self-regulate, and self-direct my own health and wellness. It just took a while to get there and a lot of work. So I really, really appreciate that this article supports addressing self as context in therapy for people in pain. And and really, we should think beyond just people in pain and include everybody. And it makes a huge difference that the OT practice framework identifies what we do in therapy, but looking into the person's experience, their inner experiences of what they're experiencing in life and the effects of the therapy, things that we're working with them that experience of self as context, really to me, it's like the number one factor that will influence the success of therapy and the behavior and health changes that people want to experience. Because how can you learn to self-regulate and self-manage if we don't even know what we're feeling or experiencing? I think it's natural to want to just shut that connection off because honestly, it's pretty sucky when life is all about pain, illness, depression, whatever. And, you know, our culture even supports the idea of sucking it up, pushing through and ignoring what we're experiencing and just keep doing what we're doing. And then what happens? You know, our bodies really can't trust us to listen and care for ourselves. And so the importance of reestablishing safe and compassionate care needs to happen for us to be able to self-direct our own health and wellness. So I really, again, love this and love talking about it because I think it's the number one thing that I have worked towards establishing with my clients who are experiencing pain. You know, we can't ignore our inner experiences, especially when they're really difficult and expect to get better. And establishing that safe sense of self to explore that gives us a foundation to work from. Wow, my mind is just honestly kind of blown by that answer because as an OT, I think we think about safety a lot, but we always, or at least I always think of it 
is external, like don't trip on the rug, don't basically fall. And even though it's now that you say it obvious and intuitive that where we need to start with is understanding our own sense of safety and that that's foundational to any behavior change, any just even the ability to take in new information. I'm going to have to think about that a lot, but also as you say it, it makes perfect sense. And I honestly can't believe I haven't thought about it in that way before. (laughs) There are so many different components to ACT. I was wondering, I know we don't have time to go over all of them, but are there any other important nuggets in this model that you think are especially important for OTs to know about and understand? Well, I would say all of them, (laughs) all of them, (laughs) definitely worth doing more study and exploration about all those concepts of acceptance and commitment therapy. But I'm going to go back and say, I think we've landed on the main concept that I think is important for OT practitioners to understand. And, you know, I'd like to expand a little bit more on self is context and the methods that we could use that are based in acceptance and commitment therapy to help people develop this safe sense of self, which, you know, actually it's an observer sense of self. And let's talk about why it can make a difference for people that we work with. So, you know, we already identified the purpose of addressing self as context is to allow a person to feel safe in exploring their inner experiences and ultimately to come to a place of accepting those inner experiences without judgment. So those of you who have perhaps studied mindfulness may recognize some familiar phrases in what I just said, accepting experiences without judgment. And that's because practicing mindfulness is the main method that we can help people become curious about what they're experiencing and to hold it without judgment, we talk about. And that's making a safe, I get my words mixed up here, but making a safe self as context (laughs) experience. So when we practice mindfulness, we help people explore what those inner experiences are, what's happening, and what action helps us choose what actions we want to choose based on that experience. So incorporating mindfulness into our therapy practice can help a person develop that safe sense of self and allows them to become that expert of themselves to really be able to self-direct and self-manage their health and their lives. So, you know, that's where I always start with my relationship with my clients is creating that safety, safety in our therapeutic relationship and safety in their own self. And I even sometimes have told clients to just repeat the phrase, I'm safe, even though they don't believe it or they don't really feel it, just to start edging toward the ability to have a mindfulness practice there. And, you know, I don't think of mindfulness in a therapy context as a separate meditation. You know, we can definitely use those types of mindfulness practices, but I think of it as an in-the-moment activity so that people can practice it during everyday activities to help them have that opportunity to adjust and self-manage and self-regulate as they need to throughout the day. So I also want to mention, I think it's critical that we understand that mindfulness is just one element of the practice of self-compassion. And to take it as a separate standalone treatment method, I don't think we're really helping our clients develop all the skills they need to be able to integrate this practice into real life and making the difference they want to. So all the skills of self-compassion, they include mindfulness, but also self-kindness and common humanity, which is the recognition that, you know, we're not alone in our experiences. What we're experiencing is common to humans. You know, this is part of an acceptance of those experiences. And so I think, you know, a lot of times, again, we use mindfulness as a prescribed treatment tool rather than integrating it into a broader process of supporting people in developing self-compassion skills in order to create that safety within ourselves. And so I want to bring up Kristen Neff's work. She's a self-compassion researcher, and she has developed a self-compassion test, and it's validated for research. And I would highly recommend that OT practitioners take the test for themselves, too, 
because her research has shown that helping professionals, we're prone to low self-compassion ourselves. And so we need to know for ourselves, but we can also use it with the people we work with. And it helps identify a person's strengths and weaknesses in self-compassion skills, including mindfulness. So you can actually get scores that are validated on these skills, and it can be used as a pre and a post test. So I could talk about for days probably about how foundational developing self-compassion skills are for everyone and particularly for people we work with in therapy because so many of us have habits of self-criticism, striving for perfectionism, and maybe the belief that we're supposed to just suck it up, you know, and soldier on and all of those types of belief systems and practices can drive our body to stress responses, you know, fight light, freeze. And what we really need to do is help ourselves, our bodies switch on our calming parasympathetic nervous systems. And, you know, so that we can care for ourselves like we would someone that we love. You know, that's really what self-compassion is in simple terms. It's caring for ourselves like we would care for others that we love and care about. And if we really learn to do that through the broad perspective, you know, of establishing this safe sense of self, we get to integrate, honestly, all those principles of ACT, too, that are part of this process. And we help our clients then be able to achieve their goals for their sense of safety and how they can obviously self-manage and self-regulate and get their best Mm -hmm. lives. This is just blowing my mind, Linda, and I'm I think I'm connecting what you're saying to, I think in therapy sessions, sometimes we like want to do like real exercise, kind of easy stuff with patients instead of doing like the harder practicing skills, because there's a trial and error to that sometimes. And I'm now thinking of that trial and error time of when we're doing hard things, we're making mistakes. What a time to be practicing self-compassion and to be that voice in our patient's head and to be helping them with self-kindness to look at our mistakes from that observer level, not from a shame level. I'm going to, like I said, have to keep thinking about this, but I see how strong this connection is that you're talking about and how it really, for me, like broadens my idea of what we're doing during a therapy session. And again, that's in all kinds of different settings from acute care to chronic conditions like you're talking about. I wanted to be sure to ask, as we're talking about utilizing these ACT principles, we're not becoming psychologists. We're not trying to step outside of our domain. We're just using them within the OT realm. I was wondering if you had specific like thoughts or words for how OTs can utilize ACT with a unique OT lens. Yeah, you know, we have so many unique skill sets and perspectives to bring. I think one of the most important is our focus on developing a therapeutic relationship and to really helping people apply the skills and knowledge to their real life experiences. And, you know, what you were just saying about maybe doing exercises or what happens in the therapy session, you know, it really is about how are they experiencing it, what benefit, and and that they're not performing right to please us or do it right, right? It's, can we really dig into that real life experiences? And that's what really we're all about as a profession. And there's really no other health profession that has the expertise that we have in this and really delving into real life experiences with people. And so recognizing that lived experience matters. And to give you a little illustration, maybe that will help you visualize this. When I do webinars, I often show a picture of a person inside a big circle, and that person's hunched over in distress, right? They're experiencing something really difficult, could be chronic pain, right? And so for people in pain, that big circle that they're inside of and hunched over is called pain. It's labeled pain. And inside that big circle is a really small circle that kind of has a happy picture. It's yellow and somebody on a bike riding a bike and it's labeled life. And those are like meaningful activities um, and engagement in life for that person. And that's a small circle because what happens is life can become all about that experience of pain in particular, right? Everything in life that we experience is kind of 
influenced by pain. And so life becomes more about pain than it does about meaningful life. And I think that gives us kind of an image to think about as occupational therapists when we're working with somebody, that's what they're experiencing. And I titled that slide, All Biography is Biology. All Biography is Biology. And what that means is everything we experience affects our body, affects our emotions, our mind's experiences, and in chronic pain and other chronic health conditions or challenges, you know, meaningful life does shrink to that little dot and pain, disease, or disability becomes the predominant focus and experience. So as OT practitioners, we know that we have to help people get back to meaningful engagement with life for improved health. We've got over 100 years of evidence that support that. And that basically that small little circle of life and health needs to grow and the big circle of pain, whatever it is that dominates life needs to shrink. And let's think about that. Prescribed exercises alone won't do that for us. So when an OT practitioner integrates elements of acceptance and commitment therapy into treatment, we don't just talk about it, we do it with clients, right? We're going to explore what is a person experiencing and how can we help them discover the strategies that are going to work for themselves so they can develop that self-efficacy, that belief in themselves, that self-regulation, self-management. And so when we do an activity, we then want to unpack it, right, with them. How did the environment affect them? Looking at context, what sensations did you feel in your body? What emotions? How did you think or feel? What do you need right now? How does this help you understand your body responses and what practices, strategies can help you in real life? So using principles of ACT and OT practice really helps that person dig deep into their own lived experience. And OT practitioners can help them get to that deeper level of understanding. And we can also be incredibly valuable in giving feedback to the rest of the team working with these people on how effective or meaningful the treatment programs and methods are for this individual person based on their lived experience and their life. So we're just hugely important here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I love that you brought up that interdisciplinary team and all the supplementary research I looked at. That team component was so important to addressing chronic pain. Even when they're using ACT, it's not just the psychologist. That whole team was really there to support it. I wanted to ask just a practical question about your sessions. I always like to ask people about specific assessments that they like to use. And I can tell from talking to you that you have such a broad perspective on your treatments. And I was wondering if you utilize any assessments that really help you capture that. Yeah. So when we talk about assessments for pain, right? First, I just want to say, I think it's important that we understand what pain is and pain isn't. And so let's talk about the current definition of pain. So the International Association for the Study of Pain, called the IASP, has last year came out with an updated and expanded definition of pain. So I just want to read that to you so we can talk about it when we then talk about assessments. So the definition is pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage, meaning you don't have to have tissue damage to have pain, okay? So, and it's sensory and emotional. They also added six key notes, and I'll just share two of them that I think are critical. And the key notes to add to the definition are, pain is always a personal experience that is influenced to varying degrees by biological, psychological, and social factors. So again, lived experience, individual biological, psychological, and social factors influence pain. And also that a person's report of pain should always be respected, always be respected. So those terms malingering and exaggerating, we need to stop doing that. <laughs> pain is real, pain is real, and always should be respected and validated. So, you know, pain is not created by tissues. It's very complicated, but, you know, basically we can when we study pain science, we understand that the brain and the immune systems are very involved in creating a pain experience and a pain response for a person. So assessments of pain must really be assessments of a person's lived experience, right? Not just a number <laughs> that we assess. 
So as occupational therapists, we want to look at those biological, psychological, social, and I'll add spiritual factors also that influence that pain experience. So talking about assessments for OT practitioners that can find helpful, I would say the pain questionnaires don't really capture lived experience, which obviously is number one in my book. So many OTs like to use the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, the COPM, as an assessment and outcome measure. And I initially in my practice used the MOHO, the Model of Human Occupation Self-Assessment. But I later moved to just using a simple functional impact questionnaire to help conversations start and become more conversational and allow people to do more self-reflection because those quick questionnaires and assessments don't capture slow thinking, I would say, which gives you deeper information and more data really on the lived experience. So my favorites, I use a fear avoidance hierarchy form to identify meaningful activities and kind of rate how much does a person fear it and how much they avoid it. This helps with goal setting and I can also assess progress in terms of reduced fear and avoidance rather than just focusing on percentage of performance which can be inaccurate because people can just push through, right, and overdo or underdo. It also gives an opportunity for clients to explore the whys, why they may choose to do something or not choose to do something and and the elements they need to work on, right, this fear avoidance that goes deeper into that lived experience and working on that acceptance and commitment kind of process of exploring our inner experiences and adjusting. So that's one. Another one is I always start with the self-compassion self-test, always, to introduce the importance of self-compassion skills for achieving goals for therapy. And most people have never heard of that. Like nobody's ever talked to them about the importance of that and that that's foundational, right, for their program, for them self-recovery. And so I always do that. And again, I use it as a pre and post test. I use it as an outcome measure too, as we work on those skills. And it correlates in all the work I've done with all my clients. Improvements in self-compassion correlate with improvements in life experience and pain experience. So that's important. I also also do a sensory symptoms checklist with my clients to help them identify any sensory processing factors that may influence their pain. And this is a unique area of specialty for OTs where we can kind of step up because being in pain or chronic conditions can almost be like having a low level flu, if you will. And if you know what that feels like, loud noises, bright lights, all that stuff, you can be more sensitive to. And so people, it helps them identify that and how they can regulate. And also to look at interoception, hugely important and correlated with everything we're talking about, about finding that safe place to explore your inner experiences. How is your body responding? What are your emotions? That's interoception. So if you want to do more study on interoception, that's hugely important. Kelly Mahler is kind of our leader in OT world here. She's got great resources and she just did a webinar a month or so ago on the importance of addressing interoception with people in pain. So you could probably Google and find that. But I have to say my absolute favorite OT assessment is the occupational experience profile. And not enough people have heard about this. Oh my gosh, you just have to know. And I was fortunate enough to be asked by Karen Atler, who developed this, to be a clinical consultant on the development of it. And it just changed my practice. I told her it just incredibly changed my practice because it captures the most robust data on a person's lived experience that I found in 30 years of practice. And I wish we had time, we could talk for an hour about it. But I would really encourage you to look up the occupational experience profile. We call it the OEP, as you'll gather information, not just on what people are doing every day, but how they experience what they're doing, measuring levels of pleasure, productivity, social connection, and restoration with each activity. And then you can connect values, emotion, pain, you know, interoception, anything. And it provides a tool for a person to really begin to safely explore those inner experience of daily life activities that affect their health, life, their pain. So these are uniquely personal experiences. So it's really important that we move away from just solely relying on just paper assessments and numbers and integrate more of these type of assessments that inspire conversation and will best capture a person's lived experience to help guide our treatment and experiment. You know, we it's a learning process that we work through with our clients. 
I will definitely link to these assessments for people to explore and for myself to explore. They're <clears throat> definitely new to me too. And I'm so excited to look at them. And that makes this chronic pain treatment feel so practical to me to be thinking about utilizing these. Before we get closer to the end, I really did not want to miss the opportunity to ask you about the AOTA position paper on the role of occupational therapy in pain management. I know that you were a co-author and I just wanted to ask just like big picture, are there other trends that we haven't talked about today related to pain management that you think OTs need to know about? And I guess a two-part question, and where do you see us heading in five years? Are more of us going to get involved? What do you hope to see, I guess? Oh, you know, there's so many exciting trends in research and practice of OT and pain management, especially, I would say, in the last four years, too. I'm super excited to see how occupational therapists have have really been embracing our value and advocating for our role. And I think one of the biggest trends to be aware of in research is that every other discipline research is now confirming that addressing a person's lived experience of pain is number one, and this is what we do. And so, you know, courses have been happening for years on treating pain that that are being taught by like physical therapists, but they're trying to teach basically OT principles and practices, and they need us, you know. It just supports that, you know, medications, drugs, passive treatments, injections, you know, all those things, they're just, they're not working because we're, we haven't been addressing lived experience and, and research is all supporting that. Now that's what works. And so we have this great opportunity to recognize that we're the experts on lived experience and we can step up and be leaders in this area. And, you know, I am connected with a number of people who live with pain, who are leaders in supporting people you know, peer support in the pain community. And they consistently say, UOTs should be leaders in pain management programs because you really get what people need. And what they mean is that we don't focus on fixing, right, physical symptoms, but we focus on helping a person really address the life factors that influence that pain experience. And we help them learn the skills so that they can self-direct and self-manage and get that circle of life to get really big, right, again in their lives. And so I think, you know, the future and what I hope is that OTs would step more into that leadership position and advocate for our worth and focus on that therapeutic relationship and support the lived experience and also just study a whole lot more. We may think that we treat pain, but I hope people get the idea that it's way more complex than maybe you were taught in school. And there's a lot to learn about these factors that influence pain and just the neuroscience and neurophysiology of it, as well as, you know, how you address all the nuances of lived experience and develop the clinical reasoning to really help make a person make a significant difference. And so it takes commitment to study. And with 25% of the population now experiencing chronic pain, they need us. We can't afford not to step up. And other health professionals need us because they're they're trying to learn now. They're trying to scramble because they know they the people need this. And we really are the experts. So I would hope, you know, that we see us step up in this area and also that we see our education programs step up to incorporate more updated pain science education, as well as training in ACT skills, uh, self-compassion, mindfulness, you know, all these practices that can help our new graduates, you know, feel more confident and we can kind of propel this specialization forward. So I hope it becomes a specialization for us and, and we step up and we passionately embrace and advocate for our worth and working with people with chronic pain. Mm. Yeah, and you shared lots of resources with me that I'll link to on our podcast page where people can be learning more. And just to second what you're saying, and I don't want to use too strong of language, but I'm like, it almost to me feels like a moral duty or a matter of justice to be moving into this area because not only are the other pain treatments not working, they're actively harmful sometimes. We haven't talked about opioids yet, we won't go into that, but that's such a devastation on our society. And it's mind-blowing to me that we do have these other options that work. And 
do not carry the same risks and they are not widely enough available. So that I think is a lot for us as OTs to consider. And yeah, I hope the future that you're describing definitely comes to fruition. I just like to add to, I think it's a moving away from that fixing, right? The biomedical model has really focused on trying to fix, you know, people looking for a fix for their pain. And this is, you know, a more of a co-creation process working with clients on self-discovery and self-awareness and self-regulation and takes a lot more time investment and personal relationship. And that's where we need to go, though, because the fixing stuff, right, like you said, it doesn't work. It hasn't been working. (laughs) Before we move into our rapid fire, I wanted to ask, we've gotten really high level and we're talking really big picture But based on our conversation today, what's like the one practical strategy that you hope OTs do differently as they walk into their practice tomorrow? Well, I would say I think the one strategy I hope is the practice of self-compassion. So that's for ourselves, but also to help with the people that we work with, because that's going to help create that sense of safety that every person that you come in contact with needs. And really, it's our greatest therapeutic tool, that ability to co-regulate, right? If we're in that place, then the people that we work with, it can feel safe enough to explore and go to that place too. So I highly recommend, you know, checking out Kristen Neff's work, doing the self-compassion test, work on it for yourself, because when you understand it, then you can really help other people to embrace it and understand it for themselves. So I think that practice of self-kindness, you know, mindfulness, common humanity, it just really changes our therapeutic relationship and our process that we can work with people and, and really dig into these lived experiences and explore and have permission to experiment, right? And not feel like we're responsible for fixing people, right? <laughs> we, we're responsible for helping people do self-discovery and, and make that safe place. So I think That's the one thing, self-compassion for sure. Well, Linda, that's so beautiful and something that makes me just excited for us to be able to be thinking of working on both for our clients and for just us as practitioners. I just see the richness that that can add to our practice. I can't believe it, but we're at our rapid fire. If you're up for it, I have just three quick questions that I'd love to ask you before we wrap up. Are you ready? Perfect. Go for it. (laughs) Okay, perfect. What's the first sentence that you usually say to your clients? Ah, okay. Well, I would say after introductions, one of the first things I say is that I'm here to support you and that I come with skills and knowledge of science and therapy treatments, but what we don't know yet is the science of you, and that means everything about you, and that's what we're going to work on figuring out together. Oh, that just builds so beautifully on what we've talked about today. I also wanted to ask how you typically describe occupational therapy. So I have a really short answer. Real-life therapy for the real you. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll just chew on that later. I love it. Beautiful. What is something you've read recently that has inspired you as an OT? So I'm into reading poetry lately, and Mary Oliver's become one of my favorite Mm. poets. And so I recently read this quote, and I added it to the end of my business emails. I love it so much. And the quote is from this poem, If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give into it. Don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. Hmm. And I just like, joy is not meant to be a crumb. And, you know, isn't that what happens when we're experiencing tough things in our lives and, our, and the people we work with are? Joy was a crumb in my life when I was in pain. And it, also it became last year I lost my mom and in grief, joy became a crumb. And I had to work my way back into it, you know. I think that's ultimately what we do with the people we work with. We help joy in life to be bigger than a crumb. Hmm. And I love thinking about how from your origin story, you have this expansiveness for enjoying life and the thrill of it. And I love thinking about how you've brought that to your OT practice. 
There's so much more to keep talking about with pain, and we'll add the resources to the podcast page for people to continue to explore. But as we're at the end of our time today, I would just love to know if you have any like final thoughts that have percolated to the top for you before we sign off. Ah, so thinking about like an important thing that I'd like maybe want people to get from our conversation. We talked a lot about lived experience and, you know, my pain story. And and I hope that people listening will take away from this kind of the need to look into their own lived experiences, you know, and even the lived experiences of this conversation, right? What grabbed your attention? What piqued your curiosity? What inspired you or your creativity? And maybe you were challenged by something and you want to dig into it more. What's your lived experience from listening to this conversation and and I hope that you do explore that for yourself and you discover for yourself what you need from this just like the clients I work with that's what I want them to come away with their own ahas and their own understandings and so I hope that you found some unique meaning for yourself and I certainly would love to hear about those experiences if anyone wants to share in comments so thank you so much Sarah for this opportunity and Yeah, I just hope, too, that we have joy bigger than a crumb in our lives. Oh, well, this has truly been a joy. Thank you so much for being here today, Linda. Wow, you all, I just love how this conversation unfolded. Honestly, I was not expecting this topic to feel so personal and to circle back to these ideas of self-compassion. But I think Linda is absolutely right that these are foundational skills for us as therapists and a foundational part of the work that we do with our clients. And I'm so thankful to her for taking this complex topic and lending her personal story to it and putting it into words that just really resonated with us. If you are a member of the OT Potential Club, I cannot wait to talk with you about what this episode meant to you, what it means for our profession and just your particular practice. As a reminder, the club is also where you will go to take a five-question test and earn a certificate for your time today. And finally, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope as always, this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.